You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good morning, church. My name is Deborah, and today I'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 1. It's a long scripture reading passage, so bear with me if I make mistakes. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of the Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that, the tumors, bro- so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the Ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the Ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps you will lighten his hand from off, from you, off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh had hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart, a two milk cows on which there has never become a yoke, and yoke the calves to the cart, but take their calf home away from them. And take the ark of the, of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box, at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch." If it goes up on the way to its own land to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not by his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. 
The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut off their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box of the golden mice with the golden mice and the image of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the borders of Beshemesh. Now the people of Beshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field, the field of Joshua of Beshemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that are the Philistines sorry, these are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the numbers of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua and of Beshemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And whom shall he go up and whom shall he go up away from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you to you. And the men of Kiriath Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Binadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eliza to have charge of the ark of the Lord. These are the true words of the living God. Can we just give a, a round of uh, applause in appreciation for such a marathon? Awesome. Just give me a moment, please. I'm going to take us through that a little slower. It's a lot of text, a lot of text. So we're just going to break it up into chunk si chunky sizes so that we can understand the general flow of uh, the narrative. But uh, I'd love to pray for us as we start. Father, we love your word. Your word is living and active. Your word speaks to us to change our hearts, to see you, to see your glory, to see your holiness, to see that we are not like you, that you are above us. You are perfect in all your ways. And so, Father, would you allow by your spirit us to change? Would you help us to change, to be calibrated to your truth, to your ways, to your insights in our lives, Lord God? Give us open hearts to receive your truth today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I want to talk about this passage with the title, In the Hands of a Holy God. You see the word hands being referred to quite a lot, different hands of God. I'm going to refer to three hands, not that God has three hands necessarily, but um, three ways in which God reveals himself and his power to us. But by way of uh, introduction, I want to tell you a short story that might help us just to understand a big concept. And it starts with uh, the passing of my mother in 2009. Not an upbeat start of a sermon, but hang in there. At the time, my sister and I were tasked with clearing the house, 
removing all the possessions that she had. It meant rummaging through old boxes and things that we just, um, no one had looked at for a long time. And in the process, we, we found this old box of books. And we decided we were going to take these books to the local bookstore, and we were going to sell these books. When we got to the bookstore, the man looked through the books, and he found a treasured possession, something very valuable. It was a 1907 publication of a very famous South African book called Jock of the Bushveld. Jock of the Bushveld is one of the most famous South African books, and this was one of the originals, which had been passed down from my great-grandparents to um, the successive uh, lines of the generation, and eventually ended up in a box. Unfortunately, and this is the sad part of the story, the book was in tatters. It had succumbed to mildew and bookworms, and it was no longer worth anything. We had to throw it away. And something of this plays out in our story today. It's an unfortunate story of not valuing something that we have, not giving it the true value it deserves, not appreciating or even understanding the full worth of something until it's too late. And this story we look at today is a story about the great value of God, His great worthiness, His holiness, His entitlement to exclusive worship but he was not recognized as such, neither by the Philistines nor by the Israelites. And so, as we dive into this, I want to give us a little bit of context. In the previous chapters, the Israelites had faced their arch enemy, the Philistines. In the first battle, 4,000 Israelites died. They lost the battle. The second battle came upon them a little later. In this event... They decided to bring the Ark of the Lord into the battle, to the battleground as a good luck charm almost, so that they could win. But they didn't. They lost 30,000 men that day. Before we jump too far ahead, I want to show you a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. This is from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. So we can thank Steven Spielberg for his handiwork. This is what... It's, it kind of looks like it's a chest of wood, acacia wood, which has been overlaid with gold. And on the top, we see what Perch described as last week, the mercy seat, the place where the sprinkling of the sacrificial blood was used or, or, or was put on in order to atone for the sins of the nation once a year. And this was straddled by two um, cherubim, angels, who were guarding this mercy seat. And so this is a picture of, of the box, of the Ark of the Lord. And inside were three objects, as Hebrews tells us. Firstly, the Ten Commandments, the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments that uh, Moses had. Secondly, a jar of manna. And thirdly, Aaron's staff, which had budded. And these were reportedly within the chest. And so... If we go back to the story of the battle, the Israelites decided to bring this ark into the midst of the battle so as to win. Unfortunately, they didn't. But it kind of gives us an insight into Israel and their spiritual state. They weren't in a good place. The priesthood was in a shambles, and as a result, they were defeated. They were in a national crisis. 
Their position as a nation was in jeopardy because of these defeats. Their judge, Eli, had died. The priests, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, had also died. And their most important artifact or religious um, relic, the Ark of the Covenant, was now in enemy hands. And this is the story of the Ark. The two chapters that we're looking at today, it's the narrative of the Ark. And the question we might ask is, why the focus on the Ark of the Covenant? Why, when we have been looking at Samuel's kind of contrasting to the poor priesthood, are we now looking at the ark? If we look back, just at the end of chapter 4, a lady cries out. This is the wife of Phineas, who had just died. And she's at, in the moment of birth, and she gives birth to her son, and she says, Ichabod shall be his name. Not a name that many people call their children these days. Because it means... The glory of the Lord has departed Israel. And so we see that the glory of God has departed. But that doesn't end the story. The glory of the Lord is at work behind the scenes. The whole narrative shifts away from Israel to, Philistine, to the Philistine camp. In, in, in a sense, we have gone behind enemy lines. And God is showing that it's not His glory that has been exiled or departed it's not a result of his failings. It's been the unfaithfulness, the failings of Israel that have led to this situation. God will glorify himself. And at the same time, he will win a victory for the Israelites. He is a holy God. He is a God who is absolutely worthy of worship. And we will see this theme again and again. And so my first point today is this holy hand of God, the holy hand of God. And I just want to read chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. But before we get there, what is holiness? What is holiness? Holiness is to be set apart. It's to be separate. And God is separate to us. He's separate because He's without sin. He is perfection. He is transcendent. He is exalted above everything. He's incomparable. He is unique. And this is the reason why he is worthy of absolute devotion and worship. That he alone is worthy of worship and no other gods. And in the story, we see this on display. So let me read the first five verses. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back up in place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Imagine this. The Philistines have just won a significant battle. They are rejoicing. This is something that would have rippled through the whole of Philistia. They're excited. And so, here the ark, this trophy of war, has been placed in Ashdod. And where do they put it? They put it in the temple of Dagon. Dagon was a chief god of the Philistines. It is a picture of, Dagon was reported to be the father of Baal. Baal worship is a common form of worship in the Old Testament. 
Dagon was a comes from the word uh, grain, which refers to Dagon being a god of grain, a god of prosperity for the people. And so they've put the Ark of the Covenant, symbolic of Yahweh, the Israelite God, in the place of worship, so as to show that Dagon has a victory, has just won a victory over Yahweh. And so Yahweh has to submit to their God. And so the next day, the Israelites, they go to the temple, probably to gloat over their victory, to praise their God, to offer Him something of uh, worship. And when they arrive, what do they see? Dagon, lying in the dirt. He's fallen over, face down before the ark. This is very embarrassing. Imagine the excuses they come up with. They blame young Goliath, uh, the temple keeper. This is the only Philistine name I know. But at that point, he wasn't quite as big, but he was still too big to be able to handle the ark properly. And they blame him. They say with his big fat fingers, he just wasn't able to put the ark in place properly, and it toppled over. And he's blaming the wind and blaming rats and everything else, saying that this was just an accident. It was just an accident. So they get another man, Akish, and he comes along. He's got smaller fingers, and he's a little bit at finesse, and he puts... Uh, the Dagon, the statue, up in, in, in a bit more of a secure manner. And they all go to sleep. And they wake up the next morning. But it's even worse. Dagon is lying face down before the ark again. But this time his hands have been cut off. And his head has been chopped off. Again, this is very embarrassing. And the same words have been used. Dagon lying face down before the ark of the Lord. It's showing that Dagon, the chief god of the Philistines, is no match for the holy god. He's lying prostrate in submission before the ark. And not only that, but it also shows how ineffective Dagon is as a god with a small g. He, his hands have come off. His head has come off. He's good for nothing. He cannot speak, see, listen. He can't do anything. He's useless. Dagon has been completely humbled before the ark of the covenant. Completely defeated. And this speaks to all the passages in the Bible that speak about idols being useless. Does a real God have to be picked up? Does a real God fall apart? What kind of a God has to be set upright by its subjects and carried off for repairs because it's broken? Yet, none of the priests humble themselves and confess that Yahweh is the one true God. They do not give up worshipping a false god despite the evidence. Next thing they do is to pronounce that the threshold is a, a sacred object, one that should not be stood on. In all of this, the Philistines do not learn any lesson that the God of Israel is the one true God, holy and worthy of worship alone. In, in effect, the story is comedic. It mocks the Philistines. How could they think they could contain God? It's a joke. And later Jewish readers of this account probably laughed at this whole story. God, the powerful one, and they thought that they could contain him, put him in a temple next to Dagon. But at the same time, it's an act of grace. God is giving even the Philistines an opportunity to see his holiness. In other words, his separateness, his otherliness to any other God. He is holy and to be worshipped as the one true God. He will not let his glory be defamed even in a foreign land. The Philistines were guilty of first 
of false worship. They were guilty of defying the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And God was showing them this. Let's bring it into our world. Think about how God's grace may be displayed in similar ways in our lives. Ways in which we might not expect. He is looking for true worship and sometimes he topples our idols as an act of grace. Perhaps you've made an idol of success at work. That's become your small God and God topples the idol. It might be in the form of a serious failure, a retrenchment, a firing, a difficulty of some sort. You may have lost sway with your boss. People are working against you. How do you respond? Where is our worship centered? How do we orientate ourselves towards God in a situation like that? Perhaps you've made an idol of a secret sin. What would the toppling of that idol look like? Could it possibly be exposure? Maybe God's holy hand is at work in your life to expose your sin. How often does God topple idols to reveal our hearts and show us His holiness? He is looking for true worshippers, as stated in John 4. Those who will worship Him alone and not put their trust in anything else for their satisfaction or fulfillment. He is deserving of all worship. But how often do we choose the way of the Philistines? We prop our idols up. We dust them off. We make sure that they don't fall over again. Surely that's much easier than submitting to God and worshiping Him rightly. And then God ups the ante and boom, this time the idol is in disarray. It's been dismantled, but we still pick it up. We glue it together. We put it back on the mantelpiece. Maybe we even put some new idol to keep the old one in check. The Philistines made a rule not to step on the threshold of the temple. What rules do we put in place to guard our idols? Maybe don't talk about your sin. Don't expose it to anyone. Just live a secret life. Maybe we can just obey the commandments that are more palatable, more easy or easier to obey and just ignore the rest. God is a holy God. Sin has no place in the life of his people. And he will work to uproot it from us. And he pours his grace upon us again and again, inviting us to choose him in faith, to follow him in faith, to worship him alone. The second point is the heavy hand of God. We see the heavy hand of God upon the Philistines. Reading verse 5, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified them and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the, covet of, of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. A holy God cannot allow sin to go without judgment. Grace is being offered to the Philistines but not received. Therefore, the heavy hand of God is given. Judgment came. A heavy hand is not a good thing. It's judgment. It's the judgment of God upon them. And they were suffering from a plague of tumors in the region where the ark was. So what did they do? They called together a crisis conference. The five lords of the five major cities of Philistia... They gathered together to make a decision to save the people. And the decision was to send the ark down the road to the next city. They knew that the plague that they were facing was a result of the ark. But they, they kind of wanted to test out their theory. So they thought, mm, let's send it down the road to Garth. 
If the plague doesn't follow the ark to Garth, it must be coincidence. But what happened? The same thing happened. The people in the city were struck with tumors. And they decided to send it on to Ekron. But the same thing happened there. The plague went from one city to the next, everywhere the ark went. And they continued to play this game of hot potato. No one wanted to carry this hot potato. The ark was causing all kinds of difficulties. And this shows us that the plague is not by chance. It's a direct result of God's heavy hand. A, God, a result of God's judgment. Very similar to God's judgment over the Egyptians when the Israelites were on course to leave. Ten plagues to topple ten Egyptian gods. And God does it again. He topples the enemy city by city. And a wonderful theme that we can draw from this is that God is at work for his people behind the scenes. And this is something that Israel could not do in its, its own capacity. God had to be at work. His hand had to be at work. Remember that Israel was on the verge of defeat. They were in crisis. But God had protected them despite their unfaithfulness. That the battle is the Lord's and all glory goes to him. His glory is not departed from Israel, as chapter 4 said, but is working on behalf of his people in the midst of their own faithfulness. What a great comfort for us to know and believe that God is at work behind the scenes. You may not see it now. You may see the fruit of it later on. But what is, what is God doing behind the scenes in your difficult workplace, your difficult marriage, your difficult family situation, your difficult sinful addiction? Do you have faith to believe that God is at work in whatever situation you may be facing now? In this story, the hand of judgment was against the Philistines. They had turned away from His grace. In our lives, we face the hand of discipline. God's hand of discipline can come upon us. And Hebrews 12 verse 10 says, But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is for our good. It's for our sanctification. It's not easy, but it will bear fruit if we submit to it, if we are trained by it. And this is often how God is working behind the scenes. What we should not do is resist His hand, or like the Philistines, distance ourselves from God. And this is what the Philistines did. They distanced themselves. They hatched a plan to get rid of the source of all their troubles, the ark. They chose to distance themselves from a holy God. So they called another crisis conference and they consult this time with the priests to see what they could do to get rid of the ark and lighten the hand of the Lord upon themselves. What did they decide to do? The priests came in and they declared that it was important to present a guilt offering. In chapter 6, verse 3, they said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return, it, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn from you. They chose to make a guilt offering of five golden tumors and five golden mice. And at that point, you might think, why golden mice? It talks about the, the mice ravaging the land. Some commentaries have spoken about this being an outbreak of bubonic plague. Mice were running rampant. People were getting sick. Tumors were happening. People were dying. 
Others mentioned that the mice were just ravaging the land, eating all the grain. Another direct assault on the grain god, Dagon. Either way, they decided to offer a guilt offering, which implies that they knew they were guilty. They knew that they had done something wrong against God. Despite their false worship, they offer something that is completely unbiblical. Guilt offerings were always blood offerings. They were presenting false worship. Secondly, these priests knew about God's dealings with the Egyptians. And he didn't want, they didn't want to make the same mistake. They knew about hardening one's heart to the Lord. In verse 6, Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? These priests were giving further evidence that they need to get rid of the ark. Get rid of the ark, just like the Egyptians got rid of the Israelites. A third point is that they knew God deserved glory. In verse 5, it says, And give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. They said, give glory to God so that we can get him off our backs. Again, it wasn't true worship. It was false worship. They were trying to appease God so that their difficulties would come to an end. They did not honor him as their Lord. And finally, they decided to test the Lord. They wanted to see if what was happening in all these cities was really a result of God and his influence. Or if it was just a coincidence. But this test was stacked against God. The priests advised that the, Phil- that the Philistine lords, um, sorry, they advised the Philistine lords to put the ark along with the guilt offerings on a new cart. And the cart is to be drawn by two milk cows that have never drawn a cart and both still have nursing calves. The calves are to be taken aside, locked up apart from their mothers. These calves, sorry, these cows are then to be yoked to the cart and let free to go down the road where there's a fork in the road, one path going back to the nursing, sorry, to the calves and the other going off to Israel. Talk about making it difficult. This needed to be supernatural. If this ark was going to go to Israel, it certainly needed to be God's work. These cows would surely want to go back to their calves. They had never even pulled a a, a cart before. All of this was stacked against God. And in the end, what happened? The oxen went on the path to Israel. The ark had returned. And this is the resolution of this intense conflict. The ark returns to Israel. But before we get to our final points, let's bring this into our world. Like the Philistines, how do we distance ourselves from God when we sin? Instead of drawing near to Him to find mercy, do we devise our own forms of appeasing God, of worshipping Him in a, in a way that He hasn't prescribed? What are our guilt offerings? How do we appease our consciences to try and keep His heavy hand at bay? Sometimes, if you're like me, we try to appease God through good behavior, our good disciplines. We aim to do the right thing to ease our consciences and make sure that God is okay with us. He's not against us. But this is so far from the truth of the gospel that we don't win God's favor. We receive God's favor through the provision of His Son, Jesus. 
Sometimes, on the other hand, we test the Lord like the Philistines by bargaining with him. Lord, I'll follow you wholeheartedly if you just give me that job. Or if you just give me that significant other, I will certainly follow you with all my life. Again, so far from the truth of the gospel. We don't need to bargain with God. We can trust him. He's good and gracious. And the gospel shows us this. And so this brings us to the final point. The holy hand of God, the heavy hand of God, the merciful hand of God. In verse 13 all the way to the end of chapter 6. 6, 13 all the way to the end. It speaks of God's mercy towards the Israelites. As a way of summary, instead of reading the entire section again, the ark rolls down the road into Israel and lands up at a Levitical town of Beth Shemesh. They are jubilant. They found the ark. It has returned. What do they do? The first thing, break, out, uh, break up the oxen cart, uh, uh, kill the, the, the poor ox, and uh, make a sacrifice to the Lord as, a, as an offering to him. That's what they do. But one point that really stands out clearly is that God pursues his people. The return of the ark shows us that God is pursuing his people, that this is all due to God. He orchestrates it all. Even though it's contrary to nature, the ark returns to its final home. And he brought about a turn of events for the Israelites despite their unfaithfulness. God pursues his people. He pursues us when we run away. He turns to us when we forget him and we rebel against him because he has declared and given himself as his people's God. He will always pursue those who are his. In fact, the Ark of the, is often called the Ark of the Covenant. It's a reminder of the covenant, the promise that God made to his people at Sinai. He would bless them and keep them. He would not forsake his promise. And he shows that to his people. And we are inheritors of an even greater covenant. God will not forsake his people. He is a God of mercy, and his mercy will triumph over judgment again and again. And is this not our story? The story of a God who relentlessly pursues us, offering us goodness and mercy. A God who calls us to draw near to him in worship. And this might be a good place to end the story. Just when you think, happy ending, the ark has returned to Israel, everyone is happy, the Philistines have been judged, a very interesting conflict enters the story. In verse 19, and he, being God, and God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go away from us? The big question is, who is able to stand before this holy God? In amidst the joy and revelry, tragedy struck. Seventy men died for looking upon the ark of the Lord. They made a mistake of forgetting the holiness of God. And let us not make that same mistake. God is holy. He is to be worshipped in the way that he prescribes. Why were these men judged? They were judged for not worshipping him rightly, for treating his holiness casually. They were Levites. They should have known the law. 
This was a Levitical city, after all. There were Levites present who knew how to care for the elements of the temple. The ark of the Lord was only to be handled by specific Levites, and even then they were commanded to never touch the ark. The men of Beshemesh sinned by not only touching the ark, but also looking into it. We're going back to the holy hand of God. God is to be worshipped and revered. False worship is not just worshipping a false idol like the Philistines worshipping Dagon, but it's also worshipping the true God falsely. The irony is that the Israelites made the same mistake as the Philistines. Both did not give God the due reverence and honor that he deserved, much like the story I told you at the beginning of the sermon. Both of them sought to control God rather than to trust him and obey his commandments. And this leaves us with a few questions. How do we treat the holiness of God? Do we come like the Philistines to God, weary of him, fearful of his punishment? The Philistines came with false guilt offerings and ways to appease God. Do we try to appease God through our guilt offerings, so to speak? Are we like the Israelites who treat the holiness of God with a certain level of casualness? Maybe we gloss over our sins knowing that God is gracious and He will forgive us. How do we approach our time of worship together? A sacred moment of meeting with God and His people. Hearing from Him. Building up His body. Being built up. Honoring Him as the rightful Lord of Lords. In the end, the Israelites opted for the same way to deal with the ark. Send it away. Let's distance ourselves from this holy God. And the ark was placed under care for 20 years. So instead of leaning to one side of legalism and figuring out how we can appease God, or the other side of antinomianism, which is just a, a way to abuse the grace that God has freely offered us, there's another way. It's the way of mercy. There is an answer to the question the Israelites asked. Who is able to stand before the Lord, the holy God? The implied answer is that no one can. No one can stand before His blazing holiness. God has to provide the way and the means to do this. And in His mercy, He provides us with Jesus, the perfectly righteous Son who fulfills the righteous requirements of the law and satisfies the holy hand of God. He absorbs the heavy hand of God on our behalf as shown upon the cross, as shown by His sufferings. His blood covers the mercy seat of the ark, so to speak, so that we can have communion with God. And now, He makes a way for us to approach God. A way that shows us the embodiment, Jesus being the embodiment of the merciful hand of God. Hebrews 10 speaks of this. It speaks of people who have repented of their sins and put their faith in the provision of Jesus. And this is what it says. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What was in the most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant. By the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh. What was behind the curtain? The Ark of the Covenant. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, this is Jesus, let us draw near. This is how we approach God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have been invited to approach God through Jesus 
And it's only through Jesus that we can do this. But in the same text, in Hebrews 10, it says we don't do this lightly as the Israelites who looked at the ark. In Hebrews 10, it goes on to say in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. Verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Speaking of the heavy hand of God. Don't forget the holy hand of God. We can't trifle with God's holiness. We can't treat Him casually. He is a holy God. And there is a warning attached to those who would presume, presume, presume upon His mercy by continuing to sin deliberately. And so, instead, how do we approach God? How should we approach God? I would say, number one, we need to acknowledge His holiness. The Philistines failed Israelites failed as well. We need to stand before him and recognize he is a holy God. Hebrews 12 verse 28 says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We should be standing amazed at who God is, his awesomeness. In light of his holiness, we should confess our sins and, our dependent, and show our dependence upon him. We bring our sins to Jesus and ask him to wash us clean. Hebrews 10 says that he has sprinkled our hearts clean from an evil conscience and washed us. And finally, we come before him with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We approach God through our faith in Jesus, knowing that our sins have been forgiven, which means fear is gone. We can come before God in confidence. We can offer a true heart that offers true worship. And this is very different to the Philistines, who just gave glory so as not to be punished by God, instead of acknowledging His holiness, who gave guilt offerings to appease God, instead of confessing their sins, who hardened their hearts to God, just like the Egyptians, and distanced themselves from Him, instead of approaching Him with a true heart of faith. God's mercy has made a way. And without giving too much of a spoiler, for next week, as we end today, the Israelites learnt a very important lesson. The passage ends with these words in verse 2 of chapter 7. All the house of Israel lamenting after the Lord. The people of God started to grasp how utterly different, how vastly superior God was. And this was the starting point for Israel's revival. The Israelites saw the sin of their idolatry and repented of their sins, forsaking their idols and turning to God alone. And this is true for all of us, whether believers or unbelievers. God has provided a means for us as sinful people to be forgiven, to be made righteous. And this is through the work of Jesus Christ. A deep sense of the holiness of God, followed by an awareness and confession of our sins, forsaking any other object of worship and trusting in His provision. This is the way of mercy whereby God leads us from irreverence, sin, and judgment to righteousness, forgiveness, peace, and access to the presence of our holy God. I'm going to end here today. I'd love to pray for us, and then we'll move into a time of approaching God, acknowledging His holiness, confessing our sins, and coming with a true heart of faith as we take communion together. So let's pray. Father, we see in this text 
your incredible holiness. You're a God who will not let other gods defame you. You will not let your name be defamed through the unfaithfulness of your people. But Lord, you pursue your people. You come to them, calling to them to receive your mercy that they may be saved. And you've done it for us too in this room. How you call out to us again and again, calling us to come to you to receive mercy that we can access the new and living way that has been opened up through Jesus, through his death on the cross, through his body which is given, through his blood which was poured. And Father, we can rejoice in this. We can rejoice because you have provided everything we need. We do not bring anything of ourselves. We do not have the merits within ourselves to be able to approach you like any in the story we've read today, Lord God. But we have to come in faith through your son, Jesus. So grant us that faith. For those who are not believers, Lord, in what Christ has done on their behalf, I pray, Father, would you ignite faith in their hearts today? Would you do a work? Father, for each of us who may be coming to you or keeping you at a distance, Lord God, I pray, would you help us all to draw near to you, to draw near to you and find forgiveness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.